Okay, here we go. Would you like to know the great drama of my life? It is that I have put my genius into my life. I have put only my talent into my works. This is a comment that Wilde made to André Gide. And it's one that dominated pretty much the first 60 or 70 years of Wilde studies. Um, a tendency to emphasise the life over the works, to sometimes read the works as a kind of pathological expression of Wilde as the person and so on. Um, and it was only really from the 1970s, 1980s onwards that Wilde's been taken really seriously as a writer and a thinker, um, rather than the sensational kind of events of his later life taking over. There's also, even once there's this sort of wider, more scholarly, serious take on his works, there's also, at the same time, been a tendency to read the works kind of through the life, to see the key to a single reading of the works in details of his life. Um, my favourite example of this is given by Stephen Fry in an article in The New Yorker, um, just before he took on the role of, or just after it was announced that he'd taken on the role of playing Wilde in the film, Julian Mitchell film. And he describes the extraordinary onslaught of letters that arrived in his mailbox um, after it was announced that he was taking on the, world, the role. So, dear Mr. Fry, I hope you will not be forgetting that the key, the only key to Oscar, is that he was and is first and foremost Irish. Apologies for my atrocious Irish accent there. Um, dear Mr. Fry, Wilde's works whinny and shiver with Victorian gay underground codes. Do not shirk the force of his sexual identity. Dear Mr. Fry, Wilde's love of his wife and family is consistently overlooked by biographers. I trust you will not fall into the same error. Dear Mr. Fry, Wilde's lifetime yearnings towards Roman Catholicism are central to any understanding. Dear Mr. Fry, I draw your attention towards Wilde's soul of man under socialism. Oscar's unique brand of libertarianism is scandalously overlooked by contemporary critics. Um, dear Mr. Fry, Oscar Wilde was in reality a woman. This, <laughs> this secret was passed on to me by my grandfather, who had a lesbian affair with her in Bard Ischel, June 1897. Dear Mr. Fry, Oscar Wilde's soul entered my body on August the 9th, 1963. Um, and Fry ends, there are even more to come, and then he ends by saying, I have spared you the weird ones. Um, <laughs> So there's a sense which everybody out there has their version of Wilde, their particular version of Wilde. And this actually extends into a lot of the critical writing on Wilde. So in that sense, you can find the Irish Wilde. Um, books by Michael Gillespie, Robert Pine, Declan Kyber, Jarlath Killeen, Vicky Mahaffey. You can get Radical Wilde. Um, Wilde of early work by Ian Small, work by George Woodcock, by Regina Gagne. You can get Conservative Wilde, um, Norbert Cole, or in some ways later Ian Small criticism. Um, you get Wilde, the serious scholar who spent his entire time in the Bodleian, um, as offered by Michael Helfand and Philippe Smith. Or you can get Wilde, the lazy, lazy plagiarist, who wrote everything to make money and just sort of recycled himself constantly um, in the form of kind of Josephine Guy and Ian Small's book on Wilde. So in that sense, you can get Wilde as aesthete, Wilde as modernist, Wilde as Victorian, as gay, bisexual, plagiarist, professional writer, you name it. There are different lines on Wilde. And one of the questions I have is, is it necessary to choose between these? As Wilde himself said, complaining of... Um, Lord Alfred Douglas, in De Profundis, he said, you had not yet been able to acquire the Oxford temper in intellectual matters. Never, I mean, been one 
who could play gracefully with ideas, but had arrived at the violence of opinion merely. Um, so I would urge you to acquire the Oxford temper while you are here and to think about the ways in which, in all of Wilde's works, contradictions can be mutually true. The paradox is a central mode in both his thought and his writing. Um, and what I think is one of the most useful things that Wilde ever wrote about literary criticism, which was, surely you do not think that criticism is like the answer to a sum. The richer the work of art, the more diverse are the true interpretations. There is not one answer only, but many answers. I pity that book on which critics are agreed. It must be a very obvious and shallow production. And in this sense, another thing to watch for is how far there's a tendency with Wilde's works um, to invite you to find the Wilde you're looking for. They're often very, very mutable, very slippery, very open to different interpretations. And in that sense, you can find in Wilde what you're looking for. And one of the fascinating examples of this, have a look at um, Stefano Evangelista's book, Reception of Wild in Europe, and the sense in which each country can acquire their own wild, or the wild that suits them at that particular moment in their kind of literary, social, political situation. Um, and as Wilde warns himself in the preface to Dorian Gray, it is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. Um, and that's something that runs all the way through his thinking and his art criticism, the question of the role of the spectator in, in a sense, writing the subject matter of art quite apart from its meaning and interpretation. Um, and I probably ought to warn you again, and this idea that we, we see in Wilde what we project into it, um, my own, you know, my thesis, my doctoral thesis on Wilde was Oscar Wilde, anarchist, socialist and feminist. And that's just so that you can then edit what I'm saying according to my particular take and... She would think that kind of thing. So, just before we go on to Wilde's um, sort of biography and De Profundis, a further warning from his play, Salome. In Salome, again, it opens with each character's response to the moon. As each character enters, they look at the moon and deliver an entirely different interpretation of the look of the moon. So, the page of Herodias says, How strange the moon seems. She is like a woman rising from a tomb. She is like a dead woman. One might fancy she was looking for dead things. And this young Syrian responds, she has a strange look. She is like a little princess who wears a yellow veil and whose feet are of silver. She is like a princess who has little white doves for feet. One might fancy she was dancing. And the page of Herodias, who is enamoured of the young Syrian, corrects him that she is like a woman who is dead. She moves very slowly. And then later on, when Salome speaks up, she again offers a different version of the moon. How good to see the moon. She is like a little piece of money, a little silver flower. She is cold and chaste. I am sure she is a virgin. She has the beauty of a virgin. Yes, she is a virgin. She has never defiled herself. She has never abandoned herself to men like the other goddesses. Um, and then later on, Herod enters. And Herod's version of the moon is entirely different yet again. The moon has a strange look tonight. Has she not a strange look? She is like a mad woman, a mad woman who is seeking everywhere for lovers. She is naked too. She is quite naked. The clouds are seeking to clothe her nakedness, but she will not let them. She shows herself naked in the sky. She reels through the clouds like a drunken woman. I am sure she is looking for lovers. 
Does she not reel like a drunken woman? She is like a mad woman, is she not? To which his wife responds, no, the moon <laughs> is like the moon. That is all. And what you've got here in the opening of the play, you've got every single character projecting on their own obsessions, their own desires onto the moon, seeing in it, in a sense, a reflection of the insides of their own minds. Their subjectivity of their vision is what you're getting, rather than any sense of the world they're looking upon. I mean, quite clearly, this is an impossible demand for any stage man, any um, scene designer who wishes to make the moon into all of these things. Um, and in the same way throughout the play, as they look upon Salome herself, there's a similar kind of projection of desire and a projection of onto the princess Salome of what they want her to be. So to her mother Herodias, she's the obedient daughter. To Herod, she's the object of desire who is available for purchase, however high the price. Um, to Yochanan, she's a harlot and actually indistinguishable from her mother. In that sense, there's a way in which everybody is shaping the world around them in response to their own ideas and obsessions. And in that sense, the, the play is about subjectivity and how we remake the world ourselves. Our individual vision moulds it and creates it almost, rather than simply reflecting or distorting it. It's also a play that rewrites the myth of the Medusa. Medusa being the snake-haired woman whose look, if you looked on her, you would turn to stone, and who is only killed by Perseus. Um, by, he only looks at her reflection in the shield in order to kill her. And in a similar way in Salome, looks have the power to transform. Looks have the power to change, but so does being looked at. In that sense, Salome tells Yochanan, if only you had looked at me, you would have fallen in love with me. And there's this danger, how much you reveal in how you describe the world around you, how much you give away. And it's exactly this that lies behind Herod's statement that neither at things nor at people should one look. Only in mirrors should one look, for mirrors do but show us masks. In other words, whereas we reveal ourselves to the outside world in looking at, us, looking at it, if we only look at ourselves in the mirror, then our performance is what we see back. The only, one that can, that the only way to reciprocally reinforce your own version of yourself and reveal nothing is simply to look at yourself in the mirror. Another kind of reversal of the usual idea of the mirror giving you self-knowledge. Um, you know, that kind of just look in the mirror kind of corrective. Um, so taking all of that, all of these warnings in different ways, the basic facts of Wilde's life, what we do know. So he was born 16th of October, 1854. Um, though he did actually lie about his age um, and said his date of birth was 1856 in the trials. It's a kind of sign of how far, you know, as Lady Bracknell says, it doesn't do to be quite accurate, but accurate about one's age. Um, but it was not a good way of establishing himself as a reliable witness in court. So he was born in Ireland, um, son of Lady Jane Wilde, otherwise known as Speranza, um, was the pen name she wrote under when she was writing. She wrote a lot of nationalist verse and so on, um, supporter of home rule, and son of Sir William Wilde, who was an eye surgeon and lived in the very posh area of Dublin, Merrion Square. Um, he went to Trinity College Dublin for his first degree and then came to Magdalen College Oxford in 1874 for his, to do a second BA, um, this time the Lit Hum course in Classics. In, and while he was an undergraduate here, in 1878 he won the Newdigate Prize for his poem Ravenna. In 1881, he published his first volume of verse, um, and he then went on. He was already 
kind of lecturing, began lecturing and had won a kind of huge amount of public notice through the press and so on for his saying, so that when the doily cart Gilbert and Sullivan opera of Patience went on tour in America, he went on tour, was paid with a publicist to go on tour together with it. So he was an example of an aesthete lecturing on aesthetics in conjunction with an opera, operetta, which was taking the mickey out of aesthetics and aesthetes. It's a very interesting kind of, he's very, very skilled at using the publicity machine. Um, and what he seriously meant in that sense is very, very interesting. Um, he also, in the early 1880s, wrote his play Vera or the Nihilis and The Duchess of Padua. Sorry, two separate plays. Um, in 1884, he married Constance Wilde and had two sons, um, Vivian and Cyril, born in 1885 and 1886. From 1880, he wrote a huge amount of journalism through this period, and from 1887 to 1889, he edited The Woman's World. Um, he transformed the magazine from a kind of gossipy, mostly just fashion news and um, no intellectual content into a magazine that in many ways was ahead of its readership. So in the very first edition, there are articles on professions for women, on economics, on the fallacy of the superiority of man, etc. Um, but after a year or so, he pretty much bored of the job and um, the magazine's readership fell because not enough people were willing to read about professions for women and... Um, the fallacy of the superiority of man rather than <coughs> fashion stuff and what kind of petticoats you ought to be wearing or whatever else. Um, and he dropped the editorship. Then in 1888, he published The Happy Prince and Other Tales. In 1891, often described as Annus Mirabilis, is a year in which he published Intentions, a collection um, re-published from um, their periodical publisher of his literary theory criticism, things like The Criticus Artist and um, The Decay of Lying. He also published The Picture of Dorian Gray and the collection of stories The House of Pomegranates. And it was also in that year that he met Lord Alfred Douglas. Follow his, after that follow his plays, Salome was written in 1891, but not first performed in Paris in 1896 after while well, he was in prison. Um, but there follows Lady Windermere's Fan, Woman of No Importance, An Ideal Husband, and The Importance of Being Earnest between 1892 and 1895. And then in 1895, The First of the Trials, which is where he, he was the one who prosecuted the Marquis of Queensbury for libel. Because Queensbury had left a note in Wilde's club addressed to publicly addressed to Oscar Wilde posing as Somdamite. He wasn't a very good speller. Well, at least his handwriting was pretty atrocious. So it looks like he wrote Somdamite, but anyway. Um, and Wilde brought a prosecution for libel on the basis of that. And in the process of that trial, um, Queensbury brought forward evidence of what were then criminal sexual activities <coughs> to court on the basis of which Wilde dropped the prosecution and was very soon after arrested. So he chose not to flee the country if he had a chance in between that before he was re he was he himself was arrested the second trial was a trial of him for gross indecency which ended with a hung jury he was being tr tried together with um alfred taylor a brothel keeper and the third trial that rather than leaving it on a hung jury and dropping the case a third prosecution happened a set, you know he was re-prosecuted and in that trial, he was then convicted of gross indecency and sentenced to two years um, imprisonment with hard labour, which was the maximum sentence that could then be given. Then follow the two years in prison, 
in the course of which he wrote what we now know as De Profundis, known as the prison letter to Lord Alfred Douglas. Um, and after his release, he published The Ballad of Reading Jail. Then follows Exile. Um, he rapidly gets back together with Lord Alfred Douglas. His wife cuts off his allowance on that basis. And he spends the last year or so of his life in penury um, and died in Paris in 1900. So this leaves us with this question of the search for the real true wild, the real meaning of his works. What's the key to them? Um, I would warn strongly against the idea of approaching wild in that way. So the idea of the true anyone, the real, the secret to anyone is something that Wilde himself challenges and undermines in a whole plethora of his writings. So Wilde's writings constantly challenge any simple division between truth and lies, between self and mask, between reality and fiction. Similarly, it's very <laughs> the idea of taking the life as revealing a key to the works is very questionable because Wilde himself, again, in his literary criticism, is very strongly opposed to the idea of any kind of simple biographical reading of the works. And certainly the kind of pathological reading that kind of medicalizes Wilde as the very early, frankly, homophobic works on Wilde tended to do. Um, again, very clearly dubious. At the same time as I'm not advocating setting the life aside completely, because one of the large things that you have to take into account with Wilde is how far just as he broke down any kind of simple division between public and private, there's a sense in which there was a sort of wild in inverted commas, the public wild that Wilde himself created. As you can clearly see in that sort of employing a publicist in this lecture tour of America together with an operetta that's parodying people like him. Um, he was absolutely expert at using that late Victorian publicity machine. So whether it's the photographs you're probably all familiar with that were taken by Cerrone and so on, um, whether it's um, he actually drafted interviews with himself that, you know, kind of co-wrote them with Robbie Ross and had them published. Um, he's absolutely expert. He's, he used the periodical press constantly in a whole load of ways, including his letters to newspapers. Um, he was very, very good at as soon as a Ferrari had been whipped up about something, he'd jump in there and, and exacerbate it um, with another sequence of letters to the press. In that sense, he's constantly about wrong-footing the readership. He builds up versions of himself. He uses that. It's a very kind of public image. And I think the important thing is to recognise this idea of performance itself, that not to put performance and truth in a kind of contradiction and opposite, but rather look at what the idea of self-performance means within so many of his works. The ways in which a performance is not the opposite of a truth, but can be a version of a truth. It can be a possibility, it can be a desire, it can be, um, it can be another aspect of self that's only discovered in the, in the midst of performance. Um, the idea of getting to the true self, he undermines in all his works, including things like in the plays. So the plays, all the plays have these ideas of the revelation from the past, the truth, the dark secret of somebody, but they don't. So Mrs Arbuthnot in A Woman of No Importance, um, Sir Robert Chilton in An Ideal Husband, Lady, um, Mrs Erlynne in Lady Windermere's Fan and so on, they've all got secrets revealed about them, but they don't fix them. All of those characters end the plays in ways that are very, very, it's very hard to know their true moral character if such a thing exists. They're not fixed they're not answered, they're not revealed in that revelation of the past. They remain as mobile and mutable and unreadable in many ways as they were before that. And in that sense, a lot of what Wilde's doing is complicating <coughs> ideas of judgment. 
challenging ideas that you can fix people. And above all, asking questions, I think, about the relation between individual identity and ideas, the public performance, how the individual relates or negotiates with socially constructed ideas of gender, of nationality, of class, etc. All of those, there's a sense in which, just like with Ibsen, there's a very complex relation between the individual and the society they're within, but in Wilde very often a kind of performative one. Um, and that's also an enormously important key within much more contemporary study of Wilde, the idea of the performative um, and the slippery and the multiple and all of the rest of it runs through contemporary criticism on Wilde. So, De Profundis. It's often looked at, it's the prison, known as the prison letter written to Lord Alfred Douglas, addressed Dear Bosey, his kind of nickname, the nickname that Douglas had. Um, written in prison, it's often been read in the past in lots of ways as a kind of line of criticism um, that goes all the way back, that treats it as this is the sincere wild. This is the wild with all that frivolity and game playing and everything else burnt off by suffering where he finally speaks from his heart. It's the apology, it's the self-defence, it's the truth, it's sincere at last. Forget that. I am about to complicate that horribly. So, it is not, I would argue, that at all. It's a far more complex and multiple text. It's absolutely typically Wildean, above all because it exploits genre and plays with genre um, and engages with it in an incredibly ambiguous manner. So, it is confession as an act of defiance. It is the writing of truth, also presented as a shaping of work of art, and it is apology as accusation. Everything about it is complicated, including the very basic thing. It is addressed, dear Bosey, but it's very, very, very questionable how far it is addressed to Lord Alfred Douglas, whether that is the recipient, the desired recipient of it, in the sense that Wilde was allowed to write personal letters in prison. Therefore, he wrote a nearly 100-page letter addressed to Bosey. Um, it seems to have been started probably around autumn of 1896 and was finished in the spring of 1897. Um, official prison rules were meant to mean that he didn't get to keep the manuscript at all, that rather he could, it was only given paper to write on each day and it was taken away, whereas actually the condition of the manuscript, which is now held in the British Library, seems to indicate a quite a large amount of fair copying, so that he did actually get the manuscript back, and also passages that refer back to earlier passages, which suggests he had access to earlier passages he was writing later ones. So it's very, there's a sense in which he seems to have been given more lenient conditions than the prison rules dictated. Now, he wrote that, and just before he left prison in um, 1897, in spring of 1897, he wrote to his friend Robert Ross the following precise instructions on what to do with the manuscript that he was going to send him. My dear Robbie, I send you, in a roll separate from this, my letter to Alfred Douglas, which I hope will arrive safe. As soon as you, and of course, more AD, whom I also always include with you, have read it, I want you to have it carefully copied for me. There are many reasons why I wish this to be done. One will suffice. I want you to be my literary executor and would like you to have all my works. Well, if you are my literary executor, you must be in possession of the only document that really gives any explanation of my extraordinary behaviour with regard to Queensbury and Alfred Douglas. 
When you have read the letter, you will see the psychological explanation of a course of conduct that from the outside seems a combination of absolute idiocy with vulgar bravado. I don't defend my conduct, I explain it. Also, there are in the letter certain passages which deal with my mental development in prison and the inevitable evolution of character and intellectual attitude towards life that has taken place. And I want you and others who still stand by me and have affection for me to know exactly in what mood and manner I hope to face the world. Of course, I need not remind you how fluid a thing thought is with me, with us all, and of what an evanescent substance are our emotions made. He then follows further instructions. I wish a copy to be done not on tissue paper, but on good paper such as is used for plays, and a wide rubricated margin should be left for corrections. The copy done and verified from the manuscript, the original should be dispatched to AD, i.e. Alfred Douglas, by Moore, and another copy done by typewriter so that you should have a copy as myself. Okay? Sounds straightforward? <laughs> you then get, so it now gets even more complicated. So Wilde was not allowed to post the manuscript from prison as he had hoped. Instead, he left prison with the manuscript. So he wasn't allowed to send it off, he kept it with him. And on his release on 18th of May, 1897, he then met with Robert Ross and handed the manuscript over to Ross. Ross at Dieppe on the 20th of May. Ross did not follow the instructions that were in the letter, though it's possible that Wildgen gave him different written instructions. What Ross did was he got the letter copied, and I'm going to call it the letter, but whether it's a letter is clearly another dubious question, um, and sent the typed copy to Alfred Douglas, not the manuscript, for which we are extremely grateful because, Ross, because Alfred Douglas then burnt what was sent to him. So at least this way we keep the manuscript. So the copy was sent to Douglas, who destroyed it, and in 1909, Ross gave that manuscript to the British Museum, which at that point contained the British Library, with instructions that it should not be opened for 50 years. Now, Alfred Douglas denied having received any copy and later said he'd thrown it in the fire, together with a cover letter from Robbie Ross. In 1905, Robbie Ross published approximately half of the original manuscript under the title De Profundis. That version, De Profundis, had no indication that it was originally addressed to Alfred Douglas. So it wasn't published as a letter at all in that sense. Okay? And the first point that the manuscript itself was taken out of the British Library was in 1912, when a critic called Arthur Ransom had written a book on Wilde, which Alfred Douglas then prosecuted him for libel on. Douglas spent a vast amount of time prosecuting people for libel after Wilde had died. Um, and Robbie Ross got the manuscript taken out of the British Museum and presented as evidence during the trial in defence of Ransom saying this wasn't libel, it was true. And Douglas left the courtroom rather than listen to any of it. Okay? Then there's a further version of that shortened De Profundis that was published in 1949. And further, oh, Douglas goes on. He writes a wonderful book in 1913 called Oscar Wilde Myself, in which he writes about he had no idea that Wilde was gay. And when it came out in the trial, he was so shocked. There's a very interesting kind of history of Alfred Douglas and of what he writes and his unreliability in all sorts of ways. 
Now, the first point that what we know as De Profundis was first published in anything like in sort of complete version and as a letter was in 1962, which is when Rupert Hart Davis's collected letters of Oscar Wilde was published, which then included um, De Profundis as the letter addressed to, Doug to Douglas. Um, there are then there are very few sort of things have been altered to that in the version that you'll now find in the complete letters edited by Mervyn Holland and Rupert Hart Davis. To further complicate this, um, it leaves this sense of what is, though I will from now on use the title De Profundis to refer to all of these different versions of the letter. Okay? And I'm going to call it a letter or an essay or a work or whatever. That's not to presuppose and not to deliver what genre it belongs to. But if I call it the thingy from now on, it's not going to make the lecture more coherent or more sensible. Um, and just to add further complications, one of, I think, that was simply the a truly brilliant edition of De Profundis comes in the form of Ian Small's new edition of it for the Oxford English Text OUP edition of Wilde's works, which are meant to be the definitive scholarly edition. He publishes De Profundis as two separate works. One, the shortened version, that is, doesn't reveal that it's a letter, and the second one, which he titles Epistola in Carcere et Vinculis, which is a version of the full one. So in that sense, he's saying we have two different works here. And the way in which Ross had chopped down and produced De Profundis was largely in response to some of the sections that Wilde gives instructions to in different letters to send to different people. So there's a sense in which this is a letter to Lord Alfred Douglas, but it's also, as he said, a letter to Robert Ross and to Moore Aidy and to all his good friends. And you can excerpt it to form letters to other friends that he names, like the lady in Wimbledon. It's in that sense, it's a, is it, it's in that cover letter he sent to Ross, he describes it as a letter. He describes it as a, as a work. He says Ross is his literary executor, so he should have all of his works. So it's a personal letter and it's a public letter to, all his other, to many of his other friends. It's an explanation to the world. It's a defence of himself. And it's a literary work. Now, I don't know how many of you have written, you know, kind of long letters to lovers or anything else, but you don't tend to publish that. You don't tend to write them to all your other friends publicly as well. You don't tend to send letters to a friend via another friend to be copied and excerpted and with a wide rubricated margin for you to edit it in future after having said, can you see how complex this thing is sounding? So, what is De Profundis, to use the term which covers this umbrella of all these different versions um, and all this different content, and who's it written to? And with that, how do we read it? And one of the things that Wilde says repeatedly through so much of his writing is how far who you're writing to affects what you're reading. A work is unstable in that sense. If the if art is mirroring the spectator and not life, who the spectator is becomes crucial there. Who's being addressed? So this instability becomes absolutely central in different ways to the work. So what's in this wonderful multiple work? It's written to multiple different audiences and offers multiple different ways of reading. It has, there are two main ingredients in De Profundis. They're kind of sandwiched between each other in a kind of multi-layered sort of millefeuille of the literary work. Um, one of them is the accusation of Alfred Douglas. 
accusation of all the ways in which he betrayed and exploited Wilde on account of their friendship, his own ability, inability to break out of it, um, and accusations of Douglas's mother for different ways in which he, again, kind of manipulated or exploited Wilde. The other layer is a lengthy account of his own previous stature, of his stature as a writer and a vast amount of a kind of demonstration in action of his status as a literary critic, as he offers kind of criticism of a whole load of contemporary texts and ideas about romanticism and the Renaissance and the Bible as literature and all sorts of things tied into there. So these two, these things are layered together all the way through it. Now, there's a real problem in taking De Profundis as it has on occasions been taken, and especially in any film version of Wilde. You tend to get accounts that Wilde gave of his relationship with Douglas sort of just reproduced in film versions. But I think it's a much more problematic and slippery and complex, deliberately complex text than that. So just to start with the accusations of Alfred Douglas. So Alfred Douglas is guilty of according to Wilde, a lack of spiritual qualities and a lack of intellectual qualities. As Wilde said, he never had motives, he only had moods. Um, he failed to appreciate Wilde's work and Wilde's status as a writer. Um, and he treated him simply as a financial provider and prevented him writing. So Wilde, for example, contrasts two different dinners. One had in the Savoy with um, Douglas, which cost over £20, and in which too much was eaten and too much was drunk, and nothing remained in the memory apart from the regret of that. And that's contrasted with a three-franc, 50-centime dinner in a Soho cafe with Robbie Ross, um, in which he had the ideas that formed some of his literary dialogues, some of his essays. Um, the trouble with that kind of simple contrast is the fact that so much time in De Profundis is spent on meals and drink. It's rather like if any of you have read Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, um, which is written post-Second World War in the time of austerity and spends a vast amount of time on expensive restaurants and good brandy and things like that. There's a similar kind of lingering on physical details and lingering on luxury that isn't just regretful in that sense. Um, so there's an extraordinary blow-by-blow -blow enumeration of the bills and the meals and the costs incurred by Alfred Douglas that produces, as you read through, a kind of inseparable and complex mix of emotional and material, of financial and spiritual. Um, so that this idea that Ross is guilt, that Douglas is guilty of having simply lived this kind of physical material life rather than an intellectual um, and spiritual one simply breaks down in the sense that you can't divide them <coughs> in the work. And it's also really important that in a lot of the literary criticism that Wilde's offering in De Profundis, it's also about, in some ways, that inseparability of soul and body. Wilde, throughout his works, argues against what he sees as a kind of medieval separation of soul and body. And he complicates that constantly throughout his works. I mean, just think about the questions about the separation of body and soul that's sort of offered in The Fisherman and His Soul or in um, Picture of Dorian Gray. You can't do simple formulas on that. So those kind of, you know, the, this kind of criticism of Douglas in many ways doesn't work. Now, he sandwiches within that a portrait of himself. A portrait of himself is unable, from having given in in small things constantly, unable to break away from Douglas in large things. Having lost his own sense of himself, um, unable to take control of things. As he puts it, as he sees himself, presents himself as victim, <laughs> Caught between Queensbury and Douglas, blindly I staggered like an ox in the shambles. 
um, the shambles being the kind of alleyways that lead to the slaughterhouse. It's a wonderfully kind of large and um, almost sort of Baroque image. And he carries on to say, at the end, of, I was, of course, arrested, and your father became the hero of the hour, more indeed than the hero of the hour. Your family now ranks, strangely enough, with the immortals, for with that grotesqueness of effect that is, as it were, a gothic element in history and makes Cleo the least serious of all the muses, your father will always live among the kind, pure-minded parents of Sunday school literature. Your place is with the infant Samuel, and in the lowest mire of Malibulge, I sit between Gilles de Retz and the Marquis de Sade. There's a wonderful extravagance to that. I think not just a sort of bitter irony, but also a humour. There's a kind of grotesque exaggeration in those images that isn't just about the irony of how the world creates these images around him, but he's doing it himself. He's kind of presenting them and destabilising them simultaneously. It's not just about what's happened to him, it's about the arbitrariness and changeability of image itself. He goes on to say, I don't defend, in that letter he said, I don't defend my conduct, I explain it. So what have we got? Humility or defiance, apology or accusation? Throughout De Profundis, he does apologise for his failings. His failings are generosity, empathy, sympathy, patience, kindness, I can carry on, compassion, generosity, imagination, intellect, talent, originality, brilliance, etc. He does not apologise also in that he condemns society's laws. He says, the laws under which I am convicted are wrong and unjust laws, and the system under which I have suffered a wrong and unjust system. He says the only real sin he committed is when he turned to a law and a legal system he despised to seek protection from Queensbury. That he sees as the only real sin and error that he made. Um, to ask us, this society that he despised to protect him. <coughs> De Profundis also contains the most extraordinary self-celebration. Um, you'll find if any of you writing the third year special author paper on Wilde, pretty much every year, some of what I now read will appear as a question because Wilde provides the best possible exam quotes on himself. <laughs> <laughs> and in that sense, all the are that he is ready for it. He is ready for a special author paper at Oxford on himself. <laughs> so, I was a man who stood in symbolic relations to the art and culture of my age. Discuss. <laughs> the gods had given me almost everything. I had genius, a distinguished name, high social position, brilliancy, intellectual daring. I made art a philosophy and philosophy an art. I altered the minds of men and the colours of things. There was nothing I said or did that did not make people wonder. I took the drama, the most objective form known to art, and made it as personal a mode of expression as the lyric or the sonnet at the same time that I widened its range and enriched its characterization. <coughs> Drama, novel, poem in rhyme, poem in prose, subtle or fantastic dialogue, whatever I touched I made beautiful in a new mode of beauty. To truth itself I gave what is false no less than what is true as its rightful province and showed that the false and true are merely forms of intellectual existence. I treated art as a supreme reality and life as a mere mode of fiction. I awoke the imagination of my century so that it created myth and legend around me. 
I summed up all systems in a phrase and all existence in an epigram. It's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> so what you have there and within that essay, within De Profundis, he doesn't just talk about his literary brilliance, he demonstrates it, he performs it. He performs it in the literary criticism he does, it performs it in his analysis of the relation between art and life, on the idea of the role of the artist in society and so on. The essay is absolutely filled with comments on art, literary history, contemporary writing, the purpose, nature and function of art and so on. And you very much want to look at De Profundis alongside essays like The Decay of Lying and The Criticus Artist and The Soul of Man and Socialism as part of his decade-long dialogue about the function of art and the artist. So we have an essay which celebrates Wilde's own humility. Um, leaving the obvious problem of how one celebrates one's own humility. There is only one recantation in De Profundis, and that is a recantation of what he'd said in The Soul of Man Under Socialism, some eight or nine years, some what, seven, six, seven years earlier. So in The Soul of Man Under Socialism, he talks of sympathy with suffering as a perversion. Sympathy of suffering as not as being, as being ultimately pointless, a sort of vicarious, self-indulgent thing that blunts everybody. Now, he recants this so that sympathy with suffering becomes a route to self-knowledge. So suffering and pain are no longer pointless, as he presents them in Solomon and Socialism. They become a route to self-knowledge. And that's also a way in which he and the other inmates, he and the other criminals suffering, he and the other condemned in prison, are gaining a superior emotional depth, a greater self-knowledge than those who have imprisoned them. Uh, that they are the ones who, are, who remember themselves through remembering their past sufferings. They have a depth and self-knowledge that the others lack. Look at the Ballad of Reading Jail for that kind of contrast between the depth that we have as against the they of the prison governor and the doctor and so on. Now, the other thing that he does in The Soul of Man and Socialism, which he doesn't recant on, is that he uses Christ as an image of the ultimate artist. So, in The Soul of Man Under Socialism, he describes Christ's doctrine not as, as, not as know thyself, but as be thyself, um, and offers Christ as the ultimate individualist. Now, he extends this in De Profundis, where Christ becomes not just the ultimate individualist, but Christ is in sympathy with the criminals and the outcasts, and himself the ultimate artist. Wilde goes further than this. He also, by very, very clear implication, aligns himself with Christ. So, he writes that paralleling, so just as Christ is martyred by his society, so he parallels that society with his own. As he writes, Christ's chief war was against the Philistines. That is the war every child of light has to wage. Philistinism was the note of the age and community in which he lived. In their heavy inaccessibility to ideas, their dull respectability, their tedious orthodoxy, their worship of vulgar success, their entire preoccupation with the gross materialistic side of life, and their ridiculous estimate of themselves and their importance, the Jew of Jerusalem in Christ's day was the exact counterpart of the British Philistine of our own. Christ mocked at the whited sepulchre of respectability and fixed that phrase forever. Now, just in case you think I'm going too far in saying that Wilde was paralleling himself with Christ here, um, I should add he also very, very clearly and explicitly paralleled himself with the Pope. <laughs> so, 
in his letter to Robbie Ross, in which he gives instructions on what to do with De Profundis, or that's, what, that's being the title that Robbie Ross gives it to it, he declares that if the copying is done at Honiton Street, the lady typewriter might be fed through a lattice in the door, like the cardinals when they elect a pope, till she comes out on the balcony and can say to the world, Habat Mundus Epistolam, for indeed it is an encyclical letter, and as the bulls of the Holy Father are named for their opening words, it may be spoken of as the Epistola in carcere et vinculis. This is wild, kind of playing St Paul come Pope, in that sense. Um, as George Bernard Shaw, who I would urge you to look at any kind of George Bernard Shaw writings on Oscar Wilde, um, Shaw read De Profundis, so it was only the edited version he first saw, and his comment on it was that it was not Wilde De Profundis, it was Wilde in excelsis, um, <laughs> absolutely at the peak of, you know, in control of things in all sorts of ways. Now that, I think, is one of the keys in that how far in De Profundis it's an act of Wilde taking hold of his life and moulding it as a work of art. And this image, the idea that he's not, in one sense, he seems to be talking about himself as a victim of fate, as all the things that were done to him and his own loss of agency in it. But in another sense, he's talking about the idea that you are the author and creator of your own life. And what he suffers from him when he talks through what happened to him in the course of his relationship with Douglas and his fall, is that somebody else took over as director of his life, as author of his life. Not in the sense of what they made him to do, but how they edited it. So in that sense, he says things like um, that he had always seen his own life as a comedy, but then it turned out to be a tragedy. It's kind of switched genre on him. There's the narrative he tells, it's one of the sort of most painful bits in, in De Profundis. He tells of how um, uh, changing trains between prisons on the way to Reading Jail, he was left to, he was caught standing on the platform at um, Clapham Junction with the warders around him and became a spectacle. So a huge crowd gathered round him to mock and jeer. Um, and he says every day for months afterwards at that, exactly that time of day, he would burst into tears at remembering that. And there's a sense in which in that, someone else is staging him. He's not in charge of himself, he's being set up as a spectacle by somebody else. Similarly, he writes about himself and all the other prisoners as the zanies of sorrow, thanks to their prison dress. In that sense, though, they're both costumed and staged in a way that undermines their human dignity, their sense of themselves, their control over their own life. And Wilde, in De Profundis, takes control of this again, in a sense. Not ultimately moulds it, it's a work in progress, but he talks quite precisely about the idea of returning to control, exactly that re-manipulation of the image, you could call it. So he says, I have got to make everything that has happened to me good for me. There is not a single degradation of the body which I must not try to make into a spiritualising of the soul. I want to get to the point when I shall be able to say quite simply and without affectation that the two great turning points of my life were when my father sent me to Oxford and when society sent me to prison. Now you can read De Profundis, the work as a whole, as a performance of this. It's a wonderful, rather than wild sort of in, in victimhood, crushed by the world, exiled and so on, there's a sense in which Wilde stages in De Profundis is himself taking hold of his own narrative again turning himself as a work of art that he's repossessing and remoulding in front of the reader. It's a kind of performance, a wonderfully self-contained performance. That sense in which the letter is addressed to all these audiences 
it's also addressed to no one but himself in other ways. Um, the idea, it absolutely challenged the idea that a life has one meaning. It has many meanings. It turns into many works of art in different ways. And in that sense, you can see De Profundis as as multiple as any of his other works of, works of art. Um, it ends with this sustained celebration of the power of art and fits in with his essays all the way from the early essays and intentions right the way through. And in that sense, in 1897, in disgrace, bankrupt, in prison, deprived even of contact with his children, he actually offers a manifesto on art, a manifesto that is a declaration as much as it possibly could be viewed as an apology, a work of art that's extraordinarily complex and difficult and multiple. Um, and in that sense, he creates himself before the audience of the reader and takes the reader through each of the moves in that process of self-creation before he leaves them at the end of the work with the work of self and the work of the literary work, De Profundis, unfinished. So he finishes. Do not be afraid of the past. If people tell you that it is irrevocable, do not believe them. The past and the present and the future are but one moment in the sight of God, in whose sight we should try to, leave, to live. Time and space, succession and extension are merely accidental conditions of thought. The imagination can transcend them and move in a free sphere of ideal existences. Things also are in their essence what we choose to make them. A thing is according to the mode in which one looks at it. Where others, says Blake, see but the dawn coming over the hill, I see the sons of God shouting for joy. What seemed to me, to the world and to myself, my future, I lost irretrievably when I let myself be taunted into taking action against your father. Had, I dare say, lost it really long before that. What lies before me is my past. I have got to make myself look on that with different eyes, to make the world look on it with different eyes. This I cannot do by ignoring it or slighting it or praising it or denying it. It is only to be done fully by accepting it fully as an inevitable part of the evolution of my life and character, by bowing my head to everything that I have suffered. How far I am away from the true temper of soul, this letter in its changing uncertain moods, its scorn and bitterness, its aspirations and its failure to realise those aspirations shows you quite clearly. So what you have there is a life as work in process, as well as this, and in that sense, the life as work in progress it's in process of being created. It ends with yet more to be done. And in that sense, that fits, that idea of what Wilde's talking about, the life as work of art, fits very neatly with, if I talk of De Profundis, as all these editorial possibilities, all these letters to different people, as a work of art, as something still to be corrected with a wide rubricated margin. In that sense, Wilde himself knows this work of art is also unfinished, ready for me moulding, ready to become multiple different things. So there's a wonderful kind of consonance between the complexity and stability of De Profundis itself and of what Wilde's talking about, that coming together of the two. Um, so in that sense, and that's also worth holding in mind in lots of ways for Wilde's other works, the question of how far they reach one stable finishing point or they remain as multiple possibilities. Most obviously in the case of the plays, because they're there for performance, which always means reinterpretation in every way, but actually they're with pretty much all of his works in all sorts of different ways. Um, there you go, I simplified De Profundis for you, not. Um, next week, it's Wilder's Victorian and Modernist. Thank you.